these five truths become really the thing that frames and shapes and bursts the Reformation. And these were the five things that got the church back on track. The authority of God's word. The centrality of Jesus Christ. Salvation is by grace through faith. This is all done by God and for his glory. Thank you for listening to Sozo Church in Spokane, Washington. For more information on Sozo Church, visit sozospokane.com. If we're not going to devote and defend right, sound doctrine, then we run the risk very, very blatantly, and historically this is what happens, we become deceived, and then eventually you fall into deception enough, I love you and I know this is not popular, and I know I'm not supposed to say this, but you fall into deception enough, you abandon enough right thinking, and we stop being the church. This is Sozo Church. Well, uh, let me introduce myself. I'm Doug Malott. I am the executive pastor here at, at Sozo. Let me give you just a little bit of review. We have been looking at the five solas, or as, as Mark so well has put up there, our topic is alone. Because we're celebrating this particular year coming up in October. It'll be actually 500 years since Martin Luther shocked the world and nailed to the door of his church his, his list of theses that challenged the way the church hierarchy saw Christianity working and how they saw people needing to respond. And he set the church and literally history on its ear by moving away from his commitment to rules, regulation, and a hierarchy of works and advocating what the Bible had already been advocating since it was written, and that is that the just or the righteous, people who want to be right with God, live by simple faith. Now, those of us who are Christians, we've been around this thing for a long time. You hear that phrase, and it doesn't maybe carry the same weight that it did back in uh, the early 1500s. But for Martin Luther to say to the church world and to his church leaders and to uh, the Christian, uh, Christian believers at that, in that day, that God was simply looking for a heart of belief rather than adherence to a system of law and rules. It scared the church world to death. In fact, Martin Luther was, um, if you know any of the history, I was doing some, some brush up on this this, last, some, this past, past months. Um, when Martin Luther refused to back down on his position, that indulgences and spending money and worshiping relics and worshiping saints and going through all the pilgrimages did not earn anyone 
any ounce of acceptance before God. God accepted people because of his grace in their life and a simple act of faith. He was considered an enemy of the church. He was labeled a heretic. And in fact, when he left the, this great meeting they had, because of the indictment against him, he was actually free target for anybody who wanted to arrest him, kill him, beat him up, take their vengeance out on Martin Luther. He was fair target. That's what it meant to be a heretic. In fact, what happened is he's leaving um, on the way home. One of his good friends actually kidnaps him to protect him and hides him away in a castle for almost a year, which was the best thing for Martin Luther and also for the church. So we want to look today at that particular aspect of these five solas. You see the list there. Um, Number one, that Robert talked about, the authority of God's written word, scripture alone. Uh, Mark touched on the supremacy and centrality of Jesus Christ, Christ alone, and then he did such a good job last week. Forgiveness of sin is by God's grace alone. Today we're going to look at salvation being through repentance and belief, faith alone. And then Mark will be back in the the pulpit next week um, looking at God's glory alone. you want uh, some Latin, there it is. Sola fide means faith alone. I wanted to um, use some uh, illustration here. I think Mark said last week that he likes to explain this relationship between grace and faith in this way. Grace is God's the, the power and pressure of God's, oh, the water, I should say, through a hose. The hose being the receptacle, the, the way that, that grace is actually uh, released into our life, uh, the faith of the individual. Now, I have this, this is an old hose that I have. Um, some years, and then I had to buy a... Um, a, pre, a water pressure gauge because we had some plumbing done and the, pl- and the plumber was questioning whether we had enough pressure in our house. So I bought one of these and run around, you know, tapping my outside spigot and my uh, laundry spigot and back spigot and everything else, finding out that I've got pretty good pressure. Um, in the picture, you'll see My lawn. You see that little hose? Here, some years ago, I went to a master gardener clinic where I was um, uh, embarrassed about this gentleman and the way he had built his, his sprinklers, his automatic watering system in his lawn. I mean, he had misters and he had pop-ups and he had uh, just all of this wonderful, elaborate watering system for his garden. And it took him years to put together. And I thought, man, that's the way to go. And then I asked him how much it cost him to put all of this in. 
in time and materials. And he said, oh, I'm constantly working on it. It's cost me hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of dollars over the last few years. But in the end, it's worth it. And I went home thinking, is it really? <laughs> I'd like to have that, but I don't think I can buy all of the fancy equipment and so on. So what I did is I just started designing my own conduit, my own way to get water from the spigot out to my raised beds. And so you see this hose kind of winding its way through my grass. I can actually mow over the top of that, not hurt it. Uh, to the next picture there, if you wouldn't mind. And then the other set, you see that hose. And so I've rigged up this, this system where I can put a timer on my spigot and uh, have my, my raised beds watered a couple times a day without me. In fact, it's watering right now, not yet. Half hour. About a half hour, it'll water, and I'm not even there. And I thought this was really a great illustration when Mark was talking about how grace is the water and the pressure of God's ability to change us and work in our life, but there has to be a release into our life. And where does that release? It's through faith. It's like the hose. And I was thinking about this analogy, and I want to take it one step further. Have you ever had your hose, have you ever had your hose kink? Have you ever had those hoses that are supposed to be kink-free? Eh, don't believe them. They are, some of them are more resistant to kinking, but it happens. And I think a kinked hose, I think, illustrates the condition of the human heart before they're saved. Before they actually experience the grace of God and salvation. Paul actually writes um, in um, one of his epistles that, it, that he believes that every man has been given an element of faith. That God has gifted every human being with a little bit of faith. And sin kinks that faith so that the grace of God, which is abundant and available to every single person, has no way to be released through a person's life. How does the, the, the hose become unkinked? Well, it's through repentance and surrender and this wonderful thing that, that Martin Luther talked about, and that is simple faith where you're trusting Jesus for your standing, your right standing before God. Not the system, not the program, not the hierarchy, not how much you can spend or how much you can do, but simply believing. Just simply believing. Let's get past this garden scene here. I wanted to just um, um, give you a few of Martin Luther's quotes. He uh, uh, said some very powerful things about the Bible and about faith itself. And we're talking about being saved through grace by faith. And we're focusing on faith today. It's one of those five solas that were the, during the foundation for the Reformation and for the change that came to the church. When it comes to the Bible, this is um, uh, what Martin Luther believed. The Bible, he says, is alive. 
It speaks to me. It has feet. It runs after me. It has hands. It lays hold of me. Now we read that and think, well, yeah, that's, that's kind of how I approach the Bible. I read the Bible and God speaks to me through it. But when Martin Luther wrote these words, the Bible was not handled as a living book. And so for Martin Luther to say to the church world, when I read the Bible, the Bible speaks to me because I believe the Bible is God's word and it says something to me. It actually has hands and reaches out and convicts me and grabs my mind and grabs my heart and grabs the way I conduct my life. It chases me, it runs after me. He shocked the church world by believing that. Thankfully, he did shock the world because we now have that reality as far as, as, far, as part of our Christian experience. Another wonderful um, quote, Martin Luther said this, a simple man, simple layman like me, or all of us, armed with scripture is to believe above a pope or cardinal without it. Of course, we're talking about faith, not the authority of Scripture, but by saying this to the church world, he was elevating the Scripture above the church's leaders, which is where it should have been, but it wasn't. It was down the list on the top five. It was probably four or five. The Pope and the cardinals and other priests could uh, make edicts and make decisions that would affect their people um, and, and pay no attention to whether the scripture actually was speaking to such a thing. Also, he says, I would like, he said this toward the end of his life after he had written books and people were reading his books and, and uh, a whole movement was developing uh, behind his startling discovery that the just shall live by faith, the righteous will live by faith, not by works. And then he says this toward the end of his life, I like, I'd like all my books to be destroyed so that only the sacred writings of the Bible would be diligently read. What does Martin Luther say about faith? This is, this is the man that, that discovered he, the revelation that changed the church world. He describes it like this, faith is the yes of the heart. That really is what belief is. It's your heart saying yes. And it was so simple, it was just unbelievable for those church leaders and for that church hierarchy in those days. Certainly they had to do something and be something and go somewhere and, and, and exercise some great thing to earn the right to be accepted before God. And that wasn't the case. And Martin Luther proved it in scripture. And he simply says this, faith as we understand it in scripture is simply the heart saying yes to God. A conviction on which one stakes his life. It cost him his reputation, almost cost him his life at times. Then he says, the truth is mightier than eloquence, the spirit greater than genius, and faith more and education. 
Let's look at what I call uh, faith in the New Testament. We're going to be getting to Galatians chapter 2 in a minute and then looking at some other scriptures. But I want to lay this kind of groundwork to kind of put uh, uh, Martin Luther's place and our celebration of this, this great anniversary in perspective. When you take your Bible and study the topic of faith in the New Testament, you will find that generally speaking... Three applications, three aspects, three ways faith is used in the New Testament. One is faith that is the initial justification of the human heart. The beginning faith, the starting faith. When you first repented, when you first went to the altar, whether your altar was across a coffee table or whether it was actually a real altar, when your heart said yes... That was the initial justification of your life. And so if you're reading the New Testament and you see the word faith come up, it could be referencing starting faith. But also it talk, faith is used in the sense of a continuing faith, a growing faith, a, a faith that takes you all the way to the end of the race, a sanctifying faith. And what we're talking about today will be Martin Luther's discovery that he was justified through grace, by, by grace through faith and not by his works. And then a third one, we won't be touching on either, this at all today, when the word faith is used in the New Testament, many times it, it's a, what I call a modal use, meaning that it's used to, to capture the entire mode, manner, and form of Christian belief. It is the Christian faith. Martin Luther broke into the church hierarchy, church world of his day by discovering that his justification was by grace through faith. We're going to look at um, Galatians 2 in just a moment, but I came across a, a definition for faith uh, out of the um, a dictionary of Bible themes, and I thought it was so good. I wanted to pass it on to you. We're going to be seeing this screen later on because I don't want you to forget this. This is their definition. Faith is a constant outlook of trust towards God, whereby... Human beings, that's us, abandon all reliance on their own efforts and put their full confidence in God, his word, and his promises. It's not simply a constant outlook of trust toward God. It's, it's an outlook that is constantly exalting God's way, God's preference, God's will, and constantly submitting our own way and our own will to what God prefers for our life. Constant outlook of trust towards God, whereby we abandon reliance on our own efforts. Let's look at um, Galatians chapter 2 now. We're going to uh, be moving through several scriptures here and, and bring this, I think, a little more uh, directly home. In this passage, we're going to read verses 11 through 16. 
Um, Paul is telling the, the Galatian church about an account that he had a, a situation that developed with Peter, his fellow apostle. And um, what I wanted to give you in this first screen before we get to the scripture is this. We're going to see a works versus faith confrontation in these passages. Where Paul, by his, by his confrontation of Peter, actually averts a very potential doctrinal tragedy in the early church and for the Galatian church. And there are two key thoughts that you're going to see in verse 16 in a little bit that Paul hammers home in this conversation he's having, in this confrontation with Peter. And it's simply this. One, by the works of the law, no human being can be justified. No human being, anywhere, in any time, in any setting, with any effort, with any process, with any structure, it doesn't matter who you are, where you are, why you're where you're at, no human being can be justified by the works of the law. And of course, that's kind of the negative way of saying justification must be by faith in Jesus Christ. Let me give you some background before we actually read these passages. Here's what's happened. Jesus has died, been buried, resurrected. The Spirit of God has been poured out on the early church, Acts chapter 2. And primarily it has been at that point a Jewish experience. And quite honestly, the Jewish leaders at that time somehow thought that that's the way it was supposed to work. That the outpouring of the Holy Spirit would be primarily a Jewish experience. This, this grace through faith, this empowerment of the Spirit would really be more of a Jewish experience. And then God gets a hold of Peter and, and, and gives him a vision in a, in a trance where a Gentile named Cornelius is asking for Peter to come and, and preach to him the gospel. Acts chapter 10, 11, 12. Here's what happens. Peter has his dream. He's up on the housetop. All of a sudden, someone comes and knocks on the door. Uh, there's someone here from uh, the house of Cornelius that would like to talk to you. So Peter comes down, and this man says, my master sent me to come to you, and he wants you to come to his house up in Caesarea Philippi. He would like you to preach. Please come. So Peter goes and starts preaching to them the gospel. In the middle of his sermon, the Spirit of God is poured out. And all of a sudden, what was supposed to be a uniquely Jewish experience in grace and faith and empowerment now became a Gentile experience as well. And pretty soon there were Gentile believers everywhere. And, and, and as persecution started, the, the gospel began to spread out all through Palestine and up north and all across the Roman Empire eventually. But there was a particularly uh, an incredible move of the Spirit in a town called Antioch. 
And these believers uh, were so uh, enjoying the presence of God and the reality of their newfound faith and, and the gospel was spreading so much in that area that they actually asked the leaders from Jerusalem to come and check out what was happening. So Peter had gone to Antioch and, and he was observing this, this incredible uh, experience that these Gentile believers were experiencing. And they were experiencing grace through faith without any hindrance of law or, uh, or rules or any of the... Um, um, requirements of blood sacrifice. They were just experiencing this kind of raw innocence in the presence of Jesus because of his grace and the simple trust they had put in his salvation, his, his crucifixion. So Peter comes and sees all of this and uh, he's enjoying everything with the Gentile believers. Eventually, a group of men come up from Jerusalem and start saying, hold it, hold it, this isn't right. Your salvation isn't really complete. Oh, you can believe in Jesus, and, and you can believe in this grace and faith stuff, but unless you are circumcised and adhere to elements of the law, uh, your salvation isn't complete. And Peter... stepped back from his faith and embraced these men and caused confusion. And, P and, and Paul eventually had to confront him. This is now Paul telling this story. Verse 14. But when I saw that they were deviate, I'm sorry, I want to go back to 11. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. I want you to catch the emotion of these words. Galatian is probably the, the earliest uh, book that Paul writes. It is by far his most emotional book. And he uses these kinds of words, almost inflaming words, because the topic at hand was so critical in Paul's mind. To have a Gentile group of believers now being pushed back into the law to in order for them to be justified was beyond belief in Paul's mind. And this deserves some confrontation. So verse 11, uh, when he came, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For he regularly ate with the Gentiles before certain men came from James. However, when they came, he withdrew and separated himself because he feared those from the circumcision party. They weren't Republican or Democrat or Independent. They were circumcision party. That's a curious kind of platform to be espousing, actually. But that was part of the Jewish heritage. Jewish Judaism uh, was, was linked to this experience. And so if they were, if you're going to be a good Jew, you had to practice your circumcision and and your law that was associated with it. So these men had come, and Peter had withdrawn from the Gentiles, because if you were a good Jewish believer, you put distance between you and the Gentile believers, even though in the grace through faith movement, there was no separation. There weren't Jewish sinners, and then Gentile sinners, and then, then Jewish believers, and, and Gentile believers. There were just believers 
in the body of Christ generally. That's the way it was supposed to operate. Verse 13, then the rest of the Jews join his hypocrisy so that even Barnabas was carried away by their hypocrisy. Paul's calling this hypocrisy. Not a slight mistake, not a little variation, but full-fledged hypocrisy. Verse 14, but when I saw that they were deviating from the truth of the gospel, I told Cephas in front of everyone. So Paul now finds the right time for a public rebuke of Peter in front of these uh, Jewish men and other Jewish believers and also the Gentile believers. Paul is not just concerned that the Gentile believers in Antioch were offended. He was not simply concerned that possibly the Holy Spirit was offended. He was not just concerned that they were accommodating the system of law and rules again. But what Paul saw here was this kind of slippage was dangerous doctrinally to the life of the church, the entire church. These are new believers, young believers. Um, they don't have the, the background of law and, and regulations. And now all of a sudden, these leaders are coming saying, well, you can practice your Christianity, but you've got to include some circumcision. You've got to keep some law. You've got to get to the temple. You've got to be a part of the blood sacrifice system to make this thing complete. And, and, and if they had bought into this, If they would have embraced this completely, it would have set uh, or put an incredible wedge of heresy back into the church. Paul wasn't going to have any part of this. Let's see what Paul says here. In this meeting, he says this. If you, Peter who are a Jew, live like a Gentile. I mean, you are benefiting from this new thing, this new way of living. You're enjoying the fact that these Gentiles don't have all of the regulations to deal with. You're loving that part of it. How can you then come as a Jew when you're enjoying what they have and force them back into this previous lifestyle? If you who are a Jew live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you compel the Gentiles to live like Jews? Now notice verse 15 and 16, and we're going to go with some of the scriptures and try to wrap this up. He says this to the group, referring primarily to Peter and the other Jewish leaders. We who are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners know that no one is justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. The emphasis on, is on, we already know this. Now, how could he say that? Well, because they had tried to be justified by the system of law and rules and regulations and blood sacrifice system, and it had failed them all along. 
Paul actually taught somewhere else that this, the whole issue of the law was designed to keep sin and keep your sinfulness ever before you. To keep reminding you that you're coming short, falling short. So, so Paul is actually saying, Peter, don't you remember the relief that came to us when suddenly... The Holy Spirit convinced us that we were justified by the grace of God through a simple response of faith and not all this this law and, and regulation and rule kind of living. If anybody should know this, we should know this, Peter, because we had tried, our forefathers had tried, they still were trying and it wasn't working. And all of a sudden, Grace through faith worked. Grace, the water of God released through the simple yes of the heart, the hose, washed into these people's lives and changed them. And Paul actually says, when that happens, you don't really need the law. Because by the grace and the power of grace in your life to live for Jesus, live for God, and do the right things, you do it naturally. And so he's reminding Peter, don't you remember? We've done this. It didn't work. We know that no one is justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. Then reading on, And we have believed in Christ Jesus so that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law because by works of the law, no human being will be justified. Let me just give you a couple more scriptures here to add some additional context to this. Get past my Galatians here. Let's go to um, the Romans passage, Romans 1. Oops. That definition of faith was up there again, by the way. Let's read Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. Add that to what we just saw in terms of this narrative in, in Galatians chapter 2. Paul writes, For I am not ashamed of the gospel because it's God's power for salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew and also to the Greek. For it is God's right, for in it, God's righteousness is revealed from faith to faith, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. Notice, first of all in this passage, that Paul is teaching us that grace is not just a concept, it is actually a release of God's power. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it, the gospel, is God's power for salvation. Before that, the Jewish people were were trusting in the power of the law to somehow make them better people. It didn't work. They were failing continually. 
That's why they had to have continual offerings every month and every year, month to month and season to season and celebration to celebration and once a year for the entire nation. And then they would have to go back through it the next month and the next year over and over and over and over again because they would maybe experience a little feeling of relief and then sin again. Of course, the New Testament taught that once, just one time, the penalty of sin was paid for when Jesus Christ went to the cross. One sacrifice for all of sin, for all of people, for all time. Then he says, for in it, this gospel, this good news of the power of God to actually change people from the inside out. In this gospel, God's righteousness is revealed from faith to faith. Don't ever let someone convince you that the gospel is just about an altar call. Don't let someone talk you into just an initial faith kind of thing when we talk about the gospel. Paul actually says here, that the gospel actually teaches us God's righteousness from faith to faith. Some translations take that phrase faith to faith and, and they say this, from start to finish, from the beginning to the end, the gospel reveals God's righteousness. The gospel of grace received through a simple trusting heart of faith. That's what Martin Luther saw. He preached it, changed the world. It's still being preached. It's still the same today. Still affecting us, still changing us, still the way it works, even though we gravitate back to rules and we want to go back to regulations and we want to put our hierarchies in place to somehow feel better about our effort. It won't work. It can't work. There's only one avenue. Grace through faith. And it's not just Jesus forgive me for my sins, but it's actually a righteous revelation of God, a righteous exposure to the nature of God through our entire life power to change. A couple more scriptures here as we kind of move toward closure. You know, preachers can close many times and never close, but we will eventually close. Let's look at Ephesians chapter uh, 2 and verses um, 8 through 10. These are familiar. Mark has been preaching out of them. Robert did too, uh, because they all capture this wonderful, wonderful truth. Paul writes here, for you are saved by grace through faith. So the, the, the agent of change is the grace, okay? The pathway is your simple faith trust that releases grace into your life. That's all it took. That's all it ever takes. That's all it'll ever take. It would never change. Saved by grace through faith. 
And this is not from yourselves. It's a gift of God or it's God's gift. Not from works. So that no one can boast. When God set in motion the plan of salvation, it was going to be a plan that no human being could take credit for. None, ever. And so when when we start taking a little bit of pride in the process, we've really canceled the pure essence of the process because it's a gift of God, not by works, not by our own effort. There's no room to boast. There's no room to brag unless you're going to brag about God. That's, that's okay. But notice what he says here as he finishes up this, this couple of verses. For we are God's creation, created in Christ Jesus for good works. God is not against works. He just wants them after the fact, not before the fact. He doesn't want the works to earn anything. He wants the works to be an expression of your salvation. Grace comes flooding in. You simply respond to the goodness of God. He starts changing and working. And all of a sudden, there's a lot of things that you'd like to do and can do and should do. In fact, Paul says that the good works that you need to do after your salvation were already created in God's mind before the foundations of the world. You can't even take credit for your service. You can't even take credit for the good works you do after your salvation because God already created them, had them in mind, already set them in motion. And so God's not against works. He's all for good works after the fact. But he is really not for works before the fact. This is what, what Paul was confronting Peter with, that we can't go back there. We have to live in the freedom of this grace experience through faith. One last passage, and then we will close. Philippians chapter 3, verses 8 and 9. This is a passage where, where Paul, again, is kind of giving his personal testimony and describing personally the degree in which he has sold out for the purposes of God. And he says this, More than that, I also consider everything to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Because of him I have suffered the loss of all things and consider them filth so that I may gain Christ and be found in him not having a righteousness of my own from the law, but one that is through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God based on faith.